0: Welcome to the International Trade Minute, Quickfire Trade News, where time is trade. We are your go-to podcast for rapid and concise updates on trade and law, designed specifically for busy trade professionals. Sponsored by Rital Law Firm and prepared by seasoned trade attorneys, our twice-weekly podcast packages your essential trade updates, all in the time it takes to enjoy your coffee break. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts and join the conversation with a network of like-minded professionals on LinkedIn. Where time is trade, make every minute count. In today's episode, we're diving into a collection of critical news stories that are reshaping the world of international trade. From legal battles to regulatory changes and compliance challenges, we've got you covered. Let's get started.
1: Our first story today, the Bureau of Industry and Security, or BIS, has dismissed appeals from two companies, a Turkish airline and a Russian tour company, who claimed they were mistakenly caught up in a temporary denial order related to Russia. This denial order, known as a TDO, can have serious implications for businesses involved in international trade. Let's get into the details. In June, BIS renewed a denial order against Russia's Nordwind Airlines, accusing them of illegally operating flights to Russia. As part of this decision, they also added the Russian tour company Pegas Touristik to the scope of the TDO due to its ties to Nordwind. This move raised concerns for Pegas Turistic, who believed they were wrongly implicated and requested BIS to publicly clarify that they had not violated U.S. export controls and were not subject to the TDO. Similarly, Southwind Airlines, a Turkish airline, found itself indirectly linked to the TDO. BIS had mentioned in the Nordwind TDO that Pegas Turistic had chartered with an unnamed Turkish airline which began flights to Russia shortly after the imposition of stringent Russia-related export controls. This reference led to misunderstandings among Southwind's business partners, including Pratt and Amp Whitney, who inferred that Southwind might have been involved and decided to cut ties with the airline. Southwind requested BIS to provide an email confirming their compliance with export controls, but the email didn't fully resolve their concerns. Both Pegas Turistic and Southwind Airlines filed appeals in August, seeking a public acknowledgment from BIS that they were erroneously added to the TDO. However, an administrative law judge, Tommy Cantrell, ruled that they had no standing to appeal because BIS didn't name them directly in the TDO. Cantrell emphasized that his role was limited to determining whether the companies named in the TDO were related to Nordwind and whether the TDO was justified to prevent evasion. Since neither Southwind nor Pegas Touristic were explicitly named in the TDO, he couldn't rule on their appeals. In response to the dismissal of their appeals, BIS confirmed that both Southwind Airlines and Pegas Touristic are not subject to the license requirements and prohibitions in the Nordwind TDO. Up next, the Bureau of Industry and Security, or BIS, has issued a new recommendation for U.S. exporters. They are calling on companies to require their customers, especially those outside of the U.S.-led Global Export Controls Coalition, to sign written compliance certifications when shipping items that fall under specific high-priority harmonized system codes. While these customer certifications or end-user statements are not mandated by law, BIS believes they are a crucial tool in preventing the diversion of controlled items to Russia. This guidance is especially relevant if your business deals with certain electronic-integrated circuits, radars, capacitors, and other items listed on the first page of the BIS guidance. BIS emphasizes that this is a best-practice recommendation, and it's not meant to replace any existing measures that companies have in place to mitigate diversion risks. However, they strongly encourage all exporters to review the guidance and consider implementing it. So, what exactly should these certifications include? According to BIS, They should contain the following information the full name and address of the customer, the customer's line of business, their website address, their role in the transaction, a copy of the business license for new customers, details about the activity the customer intends to undertake with the item, the name and address of the known end user if the customer is not the end user, a list of items covered by the transaction, confirmation that a license is required if exported to Russia or Belarus an attestation that the customer will comply with the Export Administration Regulations and will ensure that these requirements are passed down to other parties in the transaction. The date, the customer's name, title, phone number, email address, and signature. These certifications serve as a crucial step in ensuring compliance with export controls and BIS is urging companies to be vigilant. They recommend that exporters review these certifications for any errors, omissions, or red flags For example, if the customer's line of business doesn't align with the exported item, or if the phone number doesn't match the country where the customer or end user is located, it could raise suspicions. This guidance from BIS follows their recent expansion of the list of common high-priority items that exporters need to closely monitor for potential diversion to Russia. An official from BIS mentioned that they are making an all-out push to ensure that the industry, including forwarders, is aware of the risks associated with shipping items falling under these harmonized system codes. Our next story takes us to London, where the Bureau of Industry and Security, BIS, has been increasingly using a unique tool to regulate international trade. It's called the Is-Informed Letter, and it's causing quite a stir among businesses and trade experts alike. According to Nancy Fisher, a Pillsbury trade lawyer, BIS has been actively sending out these Is-Informed Letters to companies warning them that some of their currently unrestricted products may require an export license before they can be shipped. This practice has caught the attention of many, particularly because it seems to lack consistency. Some companies are receiving these letters, while their competitors are not. Fisher said, We're seeing more and more of this as a tool to try to get ahead of BIS efforts to regulate emerging technologies. The main issue at hand is the perceived unfairness of the process. Fisher points out, that the challenge lies in the fact that the items mentioned in the is-informed letters are not on the export control list, and they are not being treated uniformly for all companies. This inconsistency creates competitive challenges within the industry. According to Nancy Fisher, if you're a company that got this letter and maybe your competitor didn't, you might actually be sitting in a situation where your products are restricted from going to China, but your competitor's products aren't. Fisher highlights that these letters are primarily targeting sensitive exports to China, particularly in areas such as quantum and semiconductor technologies. As Fisher mentioned, I do think this is something industry needs to have a conversation, or continue to have a conversation, in a lot of the expert working groups with the government to make sure that we're right-sizing the rules. While BIS has not officially commented on this matter, it's clear that these is-informed letters have garnered significant attention and concern within the business community. In related news, the Semiconductor Industry Association has raised objections to these letters, citing instances where certain chip companies had to halt sales before new regulations were even announced. According to the BIS official, the agency is looking at creative ways to restrict certain low-level microelectronics exports, including those that are designated under the Export Administration regulations as EAR99, and don't generally require a license. Fisher also emphasized the importance of sanctions and export control due diligence. She stressed that while compliance mistakes may occur, it's crucial for businesses to remain vigilant and act on potential red flags. Fisher said, There's only so much you can catch if somebody's trying to be very creative in getting around the rules, but if you have information and you don't use it, that's where the risk is. Next, we delve into a pivotal piece of legislation that's making waves on Capitol Hill. The ShopSafe Act is back in the spotlight, with senators on both sides of the aisle eager to make amendments, but equally determined to see it through. The Senate co-sponsors of the ShopSafe bill have not only reintroduced it, but are also sending a clear message to its critics. Rather than seeking to defeat the bill outright, they're calling for specific feedback to refine the legislation. According to Sen Chris Coons, D. Dell, We want to hear from our critics. We want to work together to sharpen and shape the bill into something worthy of enactment. Senator Chris Coons, the chairman of the Intellectual Property Subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee, hosted a hearing on October 3rd with stakeholders representing both sides of the debate. Senator Tom Tillis, RN, C, mentioned, I hope those who are out there to kill this bill need to understand I want you at the table to make it better. If there's anyone out here that thinks they're going to slow this down, then they probably need to think again. That's Senator Tom Tillis, the ranking member of the subcommittee, emphasizing the importance of cooperation and compromise. At the heart of the matter is the question of online platforms' liability for counterfeit goods sold on their websites. The Computer and Amp Communications Industry Association, CCIA, opposes the bill, arguing that platforms should only be liable if they fail to respond to takedown notices from brands that spot infringing products. CCIA President Matt Schruer said, The ShopSafe Act is framed as a safe harbor for platforms that prevent counterfeits from being listed, but it is, in fact, an unsafe harbor. Shrewers contends that the responsibility to detect counterfeits should rest with brands, not platforms. Also, according to him, at the end of the day, we need cooperation. We need brand owners and platforms working hand in glove. But Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee adds a different perspective. She stated, and I think we need platforms to be more diligent in pulling things that they suspect are counterfeits. With billions of listings on major e-commerce platforms like eBay, Amazon, and Alibaba, the scope of the issue is vast, making it challenging for brands to monitor everything effectively. According to Daniel Shapiro, senior VP at RedPoints, some platforms have made commendable strides in enhancing their anti-counterfeiting efforts by employing advanced algorithms and technology to detect and remove infringing listings promptly. Shapiro highlights the difficulty of policing such a massive online marketplace. In his written testimony, Shapiro also mentioned that Redpoint's discovery of infringing listings has doubled in the last year. According to him, some platforms have made commendable strides in enhancing their anti-counterfeiting efforts. This contentious debate over the ShopSafe Act reveals the complexity of addressing counterfeit goods in the digital age. While there is broad agreement that hazardous products should not be sold online, finding common ground on the role of platforms and brands remains a challenge. We end our episode with a significant story on a breach of OFAC licenses that's been making waves in the world of international business. This story involves Farhad Nafe, a California-based telecommunications consultant who recently pleaded guilty to violating the International Emergency Economic Powers Act by breaching sanctions licenses issued by the Office of Foreign Assets Control, also known as OFAC. According to the Department of Justice, Nafeh's OFAC licenses granted him the authority to advise non-Iranian telecommunications companies on conducting business with Iran. However, these licenses did not authorize him to provide any hardware, software, or technology directly to Iran. Despite the clear limitations of his licenses, Nafei allegedly exceeded them by selling $400,000 worth of software upgrades to telecommunications equipment in Iran. This action, as reported by the DOJ, was in direct violation of his licenses, The DOJ also asserts that Nefei was well aware that he was exceeding the scope of his licenses when he made these sales. But that's not all. Nefei's legal troubles don't end there. He also faced charges related to federal taxes. The Department of Justice stated that he admitted to evading federal taxes by failing to pay income tax on some of the proceeds generated from those sales. Nefei's guilty plea raises several critical questions about compliance with international sanctions and the consequences of breaching OFAC licenses. This case highlights the importance of understanding the intricacies of these regulations, especially when it comes to advising companies engaged in international trade. Nefay's sentencing is scheduled for January 29th, and we will be following this case closely to keep you updated on the developments. In conclusion, this case serves as a stark reminder of the strict enforcement of international sanctions and the severe penalties for noncompliance. We urge all businesses and consultants involved in international trade to ensure that they are well informed about the scope and limitations of their OFAC licenses to avoid costly legal troubles.
0: Thank you for joining us on International Trade Minute, your rapid source of trade updates for busy trade professionals, and we hope to have you back for our next episode. Don't forget to subscribe.